Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So, you know what my favorite part of the Winter Olympics is? All right, I think I want to guess on this one. I'm going to guess um, the bobsled? Uh, I mean, that's super fun, but my favorite armchair sport at the Olympics is trying to spot the carpetbaggers. <laughs> the carpetbaggers? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know you see it in the Olympics, but uh, especially in the Winter Olympics, like at Sochi, there was this couple from Long Island in their late 40s who thought it'd be fun to compete in the Olympics for Dominica, which is this tiny island nation in the Caribbean. And you'd obviously have to be super fit to be in your late 40s and make the U.S. ski team. Right. But in Dominica, you kind of just have to have a pair of skis and a passport. So, I mean, how prevalent is this carpet baggering? How do they get away with this? I mean, it is discouraged, but sometimes it's like elite athletes who couldn't make the cut in their country where they live, but then, you know, they want to compete for their country of origin. And sometimes it's athletic mercenaries like... Bahrain is notorious for buying Kenyans to long-distance run for their nation. Hmm. And then there are these wealthy crazies who could just buy their way in. Like, Germany has this prince named Hubertus, who was born in Mexico, but has competed for Mexico in uh, slalom six times, I believe. Wow. At Sochi, he was 55 years old when he was doing this. (laughs) Hubertus, just up to no good. Yeah, and you might remember him from wearing this outrageous spandex mariachi outfit. (laughs) I'm going to look him up. I don't remember this. He said if he wasn't going to win, at least he could aim for best dressed. (laughs) (laughs) Getting excited to spot these Olympic outcasts made me wonder about all the other things at the Winter Olympics. Like, when did the Winter Olympics start? And why does Norway dominate the Games? And why does curling get to be a sport? So let's (laughs) dig in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, showing off his brand new Winter Olympics stuffed animal pal. I don't know how he <laughs> got a hold of that. That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. 
Look over there, Mango. It's Suharang, you know, the white tiger mascot for the upcoming games. <laughs> yeah, I'd recognize him anywhere. So I love that the Winter Olympics get their own mascots. It's actually one of my favorite things about the Olympics. <laughs> well, you know, the Winter Games might play second fiddle in terms of scale and viewership, but I feel like the mascots, those things can go toe-to-toe with their summer cousins. <laughs> in fact, one thing I learned while preparing for today's show is that we actually have the Winter Games to thank for this whole idea of these Olympic mascots. You know, they didn't start out as this cute and cuddly animal like Suharang might be. <laughs> Just look at it over there in Tristan's lap. But the very first one was this creepy caricature of this armless skier, I don't know why, with this <laughs> manic red face. His name was Shush after... Uh, <laughs> After the term for the straight downhill ski run, and then he popped up as this unofficial mascot of the 1968 Winter Games that were in France. And even though his simple big-headed design led to most fans calling him the skiing sperm, (laughs) Schuss was a big hit with attendees. And so he kind of paved the way for the first official mascot four years later. And that was that multicolored Datsun named Waldi who appeared at the Summer Olympics in Munich. <laughs> so Schuss is great, but if we're talking unnerving mascots, I'm going to go with Schneeman. <laughs> <laughs> Schuss and Schneeman. Yeah, Schneeman was the first official mascot of the Winter Games, and this was back in 1976. And he was basically just a snowman head on tiny legs wearing this big floppy red hat. <laughs> it's almost like a kid started building Schneeman and then gave up after realizing there was an Atari inside. Where it was warmer. <laughs> I'm done with you, Schneeman. Well, obviously, today's show is all about the Winter Olympics, and we're getting pretty excited around here for next month's games in Pyeongchang. So we wanted to take the opportunity to dig into some of that weird history and the surprising controversies that surround these lesser-known Olympics. So, Mega, where do you feel like we should start? Well, you know, I always like starting at the beginning. I do and... know that about you. <laughs> Which actually wasn't that long ago for the Winter Olympics. So the first official Winter Games were held in France back in 1924, which was only 28 years after the first modern Summer Olympics in Athens. But the Winter Olympics were known by a different name originally. So the first event was actually called Winter Sports Week. And it was this 12-day program consisting of six sports and 16 events. That's such a weird name. Like, Mm -hmm. it sounds like something you'd participate in in college or something. So why did they call it this? Was it like a test run for the winter version of the Olympics or what? Yeah, exactly right. So uh, figure skating and ice hockey were actually part of the Summer Games already at that point. And the idea of giving cold-weather sports their own showcase was first floated by the IOC in 1921. Hmm. So, I mean, it seems like the interest was there. So why did this first event get such a like a watered down name? Well, I mean, some Scandinavian countries balked at the idea of a separate event because they already took part in their own competition called the Nordic Games. And they didn't want an official Winter Olympics to steal their thunder. So, you know, the committee made this Winter Sports Week. But the games were this huge success. There were 10,000 paying attendees who turned up to watch 16 countries compete in sports like speed skating and bobsled and curling. And the events were such a smash hit that just one year later, the IOC retroactively declared it the first Olympic Winter Games. Huh. All right. So who were like, you know, like the Michael Phelps of the first Winter Olympics? Were were there any standouts or were the athletes still trying to kind of figure out what they were doing in the competition? Yeah, so, you know, the Scandinavian countries, like I mentioned, had this leg up because they'd been holding their own competitions for over 20 years at this point. Mm -hmm. So Norway in particular has always dominated the Winter Games, and the first one was no exception. They had this incredible athlete, Thorleif Haw, which is about as Nordic a name as you can have. Yeah, I'd say. And he was this legendary skier who won three gold medals in three different events that year. And he also took home a bronze medal for the ski jump competition, but... 
this is super weird. 50 years later, it was discovered that a scoring mistake had actually happened, and the medal actually belonged to this U.S. athlete named Anders Hagen. Wow, 50 years later. I mean, I guess better late than never, but still, that is a long time. So were there any other U.S. victories that year? Yeah, actually, the very first gold medal awarded went to this American speed skater named Charles Jutra. And he was this underdog, but in the end, he beat out all 26 other skaters by completing the 500-meter event in just 44 seconds. And my favorite underdog, though, is is this uh, Norwegian ice skater who's named uh, Sonja Henny. And not only was she only one of 11 female athletes competing that year, she was also only 11 years old. 11 years old. Wow. So did she win? No, she came in dead last. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the 1924 Games were actually just the start of her career. She won a gold medal at each of the next three Winter Olympics. Wow. And she grew up to be this uh, Norwegian movie star. I mean, Norwegians really do kind of own the Winter Games, don't they? Mm-hmm. I mean, I was reading that Norway has actually won more gold medals in the competition than any other country. After Sochi, their record stands, I think it's 118 gold medals and, and something like 329 total. Yeah, and they're actually one of only three countries, the other two being Austria and Liechtenstein, that have actually won more medals in the Winter Olympics than in the summer ones. Hmm. I mean, it makes a lot of sense given their geography and the climate. But, you know, that cold weather advantage is actually kind of at the root of one of the Winter Olympics' biggest controversies. You know, to put things in perspective, there are 90 countries that are set to compete in Pyeongchang this year which is a far cry from the more than 200 countries that participated in the 2016 games that were in Rio. You know, and the reason for that disparity isn't so much a lack of interest as it is a lack of resources. You know, being able to compete in events like lugeing and figure skating and bobsledding, I mean, all of that requires this practice in these very expensive facilities. Mm -hmm. And as Olympic historian David Wallachinsky puts it, if you want to run 100 meters or even a marathon, you can just step outside your door and go do it. If you want to play soccer, you can do that anywhere. But if you want to compete in the luge, I don't think so. So obviously, you know, something like the alpine skiing is it's an expensive hobby. And if you're trying to compete, just think about all the equipment and training and also just the regular access to these facilities that you'd need to have. Yeah. So I I know in tennis, they say if you don't play for two days, you lose some of your muscle memory and you're basically relearning your strokes, which is crazy. Right. But if you think about something like that for skiing, I mean, the climate-dependent nature of the events definitely hurts your chances if you're from a tropical place. Mm-hmm. And the Winter Olympics have also developed this, you know, elitist stigma because the colder countries also tend to be richer and whiter, which is probably one of the reasons that they still aren't as popular as the summer counterparts. Which isn't to say that more temperate or even downright tropical countries don't get a chance to shine. I mean, uh, everyone remembers Cool Runnings, right, and the Jamaican bobsled team from the 1988 Calgary Games. But there's still a long way to go if the Winter Olympics want to be an event that's truly representative of international athletes. Yeah, you know, and since we're talking about controversies and you mentioned the 88 Olympics, I just have to take a second to talk about Eddie the Eagle. So I'm not sure I know that mascot. I know it sounds very cuddly, but Eddie the (laughs) Eagle is actually one of the nicknames for Michael Edwards. And he was this British plasterer who always dreamed of competing as a downhill skier in the Olympics. And after determining that ski jumping would be cheaper and less competitive in order to be able to prepare, Michael became the first in British history to participate in the event. Now, there was only one little problem, and that was the fact that he was terrible at ski jumping. (laughs) In fact, he crashed at the World Championships in 1986, kind of became the laughingstock of the press, and they not so lovingly referred to him as Mr. Magoo. But, (laughs) you know, Edwards was undeterred, and he managed to fulfill his dream by competing at the Calgary Olympics just two years later. Hmm. 
Although he successfully landed his jump, he, he didn't score even like half the total points as any of the other competitors. <laughs> but nonetheless, Eddie the Eagle, as he was called by the president of the IOC, became this national star and, you know, an unexpected point of pride for England. So I'm guessing where the story is going, right? It's just like that little Norwegian girl who rallied and came back to clean house at the next Olympics. Uh, definitely not. No. <laughs> Edwards competed for a spot, I think, in the next three winter games. But the Olympic community had raised the qualifying standards at that point, And that was really to box him out. And, oh, man. You know, still, he claims about 70 percent of his income now comes from speaking engagement. So it, it wasn't a total loss for the guy. Yeah. And as far as controversies go, that one's pretty innocent. Like most Olympic scandals are a little more tinged with shame. Definitely. And so I, I was reading about uh, Orton Enderlein. She was this East German luge champion who wound up forfeiting her gold from the 68 games when it was discovered that she and her teammates had actually heated the rails of their sled just prior to the race. I mean, I, I didn't realize the physics of this, but the extra warmth had reduced the sled's friction with the ice, which gave them a much faster runtime. And so the three women were disqualified, but the East German Olympic Committee never took responsibility. Hmm. Instead, they blamed it all on a capitalist revenge plot. Oh, yeah, that must have been it, that capitalist revenge plot. You know, it's funny because I know about, like, corking your bat or deflating a football, but honestly have no idea how to cheat in winter sports. I, I mean, it wouldn't even occur to me to heat the metal under your luge. That's also a sentence I never thought I would say. But all right, well, speaking of East Germany, there's one interesting thing I came across, and that was that West and East Germany actually reached across the Iron Curtain, and they decided to compete together as this unified team of Germany. Hmm. And this happened in three Olympics. It was in 56 and 60 and 64. But that's when the truce came to an end, because this alternate for an East German team, I think uh, on the Toboggan team, they, they used the games as a way to make a break for freedom. And so her name was Uta Galler, and apparently she fled for West Germany while her teammates were celebrating during a reception one night. That's crazy. Did she make it? She actually did. And you know what? She actually wasn't even the only one. According to the Associated Press, there were 13 fans from Eastern European communist countries that also escaped under the cover of the Olympics. That's amazing. And you kind of have to admire people who saw an opportunity and seized it. So one of my favorite Olympic controversies centers on this guy named Stephen Bradbury, who the press dubbed the accidental gold medalist. He was on the Australian speed skating team that won the country its first medal at the Winter Olympics back in 1994. But his most triumphant moment came at the 2002 Games in Salt Lake City. And by that point, Bradbury had suffered a number of debilitating injuries and was no longer at the top of his game. In fact, he only made it through the quarterfinals that year because another athlete was disqualified. And he made it through the semis because a number of his competitors fell down on the track. Oh, wow. And that fall actually gave him this great idea for what would turn out to be a winning strategy. When it came time for the big race, Bradbury figured his best shot was just to hang back, you know, on the off chance that another fall might clear the field for him. <laughs> And amazingly, the plan worked, like in spades. As he was racing, there was this disastrous fall that caused all four of his competitors to collapse in a no massive way. heap. Yeah, it was just before the finish line. And Bradbury kind of just skated slowly around them, claiming his gold medal. You know, the craziest part was like the crowd was booing and, and jeering. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of love that story. It, it might not be like a glorious win, but a win is a win. Exactly. And Bradbury's sort of admitted that he won by sheer luck. And he used to sort of be upset about it and conflicted about it, but now he kind of considers his reward for, you know, this entire career of hard work. <laughs> I mean, you know, like we were saying earlier, the Winter Olympics don't always favor these warmer weather countries and Australia certainly being one of those. So you have to take what you can get, I think. 
There's actually one other long-running controversy I do want to mention, but before we get to that, let's take a quick break. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the little-known origins and shocking scandals of the Winter Olympics. All right, Mango, so the last controversy I wanted to mention is just how long it took for a British curling team to receive its gold medals. And why is that? Well, Great Britain won the curling competition way back in the inaugural Winter Games of 1924. But the winner actually didn't get their gold until a whopping 82 years later. (laughs) So what was the holdup? Well, the delay stemmed from some confusion over whether curling had been an official event at the first games or whether it was what they called a demonstration sport. You know, these are the events that are mostly there for promotional purposes and kind of build interest in these niche sports. Yeah. So my friend Dave was a ski archer and he was like 10th in the world and number one in the U.S. when we were in college. Hmm. It's not a big sport here, but it is in Europe. And I was always hoping they'd make ski archery a sport just so I could watch him in the Olympics, but it never happened. You know, I've met Dave before, and he never bragged about this. I feel like I, I would start every conversation with, I was number one in the world at the ski archery thing. So, well, you know, it's weird to think about things that have been these demonstration sports, like, you know, everything from pigeon racing and ballooning to even volleyball and tennis. But at some point, those were outsider sports. And also, there was a sport called, I think, korfball. I, I, don't, I don't know what that is, but I am a big fan just because of the name. 
Anyway, some of the demonstration sports wind up becoming official events, but until they do, they actually don't give the winners of these the proper Olympic medals. So even though curling was played at the first Winter Olympics, it didn't reappear in the games until 1998. And its first appearance became accepted as, you know, just being a demonstration event. So what changed over the course of those 80-some years? Well, for some reason, the IOC did this deep dive into its records, and they ruled that curling had actually been intended as part of the official program back in 1924. So even though the original team members were long gone by this point, they were given the long overdue honor of being upgraded to these full Olympic gold medals. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you brought up uh, demo sports because I actually spent some time looking at old Winter Olympics. And have you ever heard of ski during? No, is that like korfball? <laughs> it's exactly like korfball, but on <laughs> skis. So this comes from the 1928 games, but basically competitors on skis were pulled over jumps and other obstacles by riderless horses. What? <laughs> yeah. It was this one-off event that never returned to the Olympics, but it actually still has a following, and there's a world ski during championship that's held in Whitefish, Montana every single year. I mean, I have to admit that sounds like a sport that happened by accident where somebody like fell off a horse and was still <laughs> attached to it, but I've never heard of that. I mean, I did know that dogs made an appearance. I think it was in the 1932 Winter Olympics that were at Lake Placid, but this was just part of a demonstration for this sled dog racing. And so the sport reemerged at the 52 games in Oslo, but you know, surprisingly, it never quite made it to official event status. Yeah, it's kind of crazy because sled dog racing seems like a natural fit. But yeah. I mean, I, I guess they always have the Iditarod. But sadly for like a lot of other sports, they don't have like their own championships. Mm-hmm. So so there's one called Ski Ballet or Across Ski. And it was pretty much what the name suggests. So competitors take to a smooth slope and they perform these highly choreographed ski maneuvers. And it's all set to music. Huh. Which sounds awesome, right? Yeah, it does. It cropped up at two Winter Olympics. It was shown in Calgary in 88 and then again in France in 92, but it never really found an audience. And in fact, the International Ski Federation, for some reason, stopped holding formal competition for the sport in 2000. And that's kind of when the dream of ski ballet died. I mean, it's kind of weird, but I'd probably watch it. In Mm -hmm. fact, I think I'd be really good at it. (laughs) All right. Well, one of the weirdest official sports of the Winter Games was called the Winter Pentathlon. So in addition to cross-country skiing and shooting, the event also featured, get this, skiing, horseback riding, and, of course, fencing. Wait, how did this not catch on? Skis, horses, guns, swords? Something for everyone. Yeah, you're not kidding. (laughs) I mean, I feel like everybody can find something awesome in this. But I I suppose it was deemed a little too complicated for the Olympics. But it actually is still held every year as part of the military world games. So here's an event that, despite fan outcry, was also deemed too complicated for the Winter Olympics. Chicken sled racing. All right, that can't be a real thing. <laughs> no way. I know. It's it's only sort of a thing. So <laughs> a few years ago, KFC and this ad agency hired two members of the Team USA bobsled team to help promote their new chicken strips. And the brake man for the team is this guy, uh, Jim Carriel was filmed eating chicken from the KFC Go Cup while racing down the track at 70 miles per hour with a force of 5 Gs. <laughs> so apparently this is some sort of feat. According to Carriel, no other bobsled team out there is pulling 5 Gs while eating chicken. And he's right. And more casual fans of chicken sled racing may not know the physical demands 5 Gs puts on an athlete. Do you know how much an extra crispy strip weighs at 5 Gs? It's almost a half pound. Seriously, don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> I love how serious he is with that. That's pretty great. It's and not beyond silly. Yeah. 
I, I am guessing the sport never made it to the demo phase, though. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the company started this social media campaign that included this petition to make it an official event at the 2018 Games, but as far as I know, it won't be debuting there. Well, that's probably for the best. But, all right, well, speaking of bobsledding, did you ever hear how the sport got its start? Mm-mm. So there's actually a, kind of a three for here because there were two other winter sports that involved the icy track. You've got the luge, the skeleton, and those can also be traced back to the same source. So, I, I mean, I know what luge is. It's when there's like a single person on a sled face up and feet first. But remind me, what's skeleton again? It's pretty much the reverse. Like you sled face down and face first, which is just <laughs> awful. It's terrifying. It just makes me like nervous thinking about it. I know, me too. But the story is pretty strange as well. So apparently luge, skeleton and bobsledding all owe this huge debt to a Swiss hotel owner. His name was Casper Badred. And in the 1860s, Casper hit upon the idea of a winter resort, and this was kind of a way to fill empty rooms during the freezing winter months in St. Moritz. So he convinced English tourists that there was plenty of fun to be had by speeding through the town's streets on on kind of a modified sled that, that happened to be popular at the time among local delivery boys. There was only one problem to this, and that's that amateur sledders were routinely smacking into unsuspecting pedestrians <laughs> who were just trying to walk down the street and... I guess in some ways that wasn't great for business. So (laughs) Casper came up with a solution, and that was to construct this icy half pipe. And so people could, you know, no longer have to wreak havoc in the streets. And they started experimenting with new configurations. They might, you know, strap two sleds together to make somewhat of a bobsled. And within a decade, this recreational sledding had morphed into a few distinct competitive sports. And by the time the Winter Olympics rolled around in 1924, bobsled, or bobsleigh as they used to call it, it was kind of a natural inclusion on the program. That's kind of funny because it's actually a similar thing that happened with the snowboard. So the basic idea of snowboards first cropped up in the 1800s, but they didn't become a commercial product. And I didn't realize this, but until the 1960s. And that's when a Michigan man named uh, Sherman Poppins strapped two skis together to make a new kind of ride for his daughter. And you'll love this. He dubbed the invention the Snurfer. Snurfer. <laughs> and he sold over a million of them in the next decade. And then athletes made their own adjustments and improvements, just like with the bobsled. And then the sport became a full-blown craze in the 80s and 90s. Also, I, I, I really do wish we could keep calling it snurfing. Yeah, let's try to bring that back if we can. <laughs> but yeah, it's wild to think about how recent a breakthrough something as familiar as snowboarding really is. And What's weird, it's kind of the same with figure skating, too. I mean, ice skating has been around for hundreds of years, but, you know, the expressive acrobatic version that we think of with figure skaters, that didn't come around until the mid-19th century. And believe it or not, it was an American who actually popularized it. The guy's name was Jackson Haynes, and he was looking for a way to combine his ballet dance training with ice skating at a time when most of the skaters were focusing on just doing these complex patterns in the ice and So moving gracefully to music and all the spinning and jumping, that was something that no ice skater was doing at the time. And it all seemed too theatrical, I guess, for some people. Mm. So this restrictive view frustrated Haynes. And so he left for Europe and this international style, as they started to describe it, it began to you know thrill these audiences in London and Paris and other places that they were taking it. And so he crisscrossed the European continent as this skating celebrity for over a decade And so today, people remember him as the father of figure skating. Oh, I love that. Anyway, I I know there are plenty of other innovations connected to the Winter Olympics that we should probably talk about. But first, let's take a little break. So 
Dave Burgart is a dear friend of mine. This is how far we go back. So I, I was on a study abroad trip to Tibet, and I knew no one on the program. And as I was walking onto this bus as a total dork, I, I mean, I, I think I had a sketch pad in one hand and a ukulele in my other, and I had this like ridiculous little suitcase while everyone had these awesome hiking backpacks. And I spotted Dave, and he was on this bus just playing with a Rubik's Cube, and he was wearing a Caulfields t-shirt, which was a little band from Delaware, and I thought... Another cool dork. I found my people. But then uh, later, Dave was so <laughs> humble about this, and I was shocked to learn he was number one in the country in ski archery. And, and the fact that he was a real athlete just blew me away. But that's what I wanted <laughs> to talk about today. So, Dave Burgart, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Mangesh. We can uh, we can debate real athlete with uh, ski archery. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm always interested in these like fringe sports, and and I'm so curious, like how did you even learn about ski archery, and how did you get into it? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so you know, obviously, I grew up as a competitive archer. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I was just like, I think I was one of those kids. I just went to summer camp and uh, you know picked up archery and you know, just fell in love with it. And it just happened like the, the camp counselor, like lived down the street for me and, and he uh, shot archery year round. And so he invited me to, to, you know, start shooting with him. And so like in, I don't know, elementary school, middle school, like I was kind of going around the East coast uh, doing all these archery tournaments. And then like I hit high school and like archery is fun. Um, I learned a lot from it, but it was like a little bit too mellow and all my friends are doing Nordic skiing. And so I just, picked it up and then like learned about it and i'm like wait i can combine these two things and uh <laughs> into this really obscure sport like that sounds awesome i know and, it's like uh, the most amazing venn diagram of things i'd never put together <laughs> totally uh, and so yeah and then i just started uh racing in in the ski archery archery bathlon and um like i just was at the right time like it was starting to get bigger internationally and had some opportunities to start traveling and racing and uh yeah, I did that from like 1998 to like 2007-ish or so. I raced all over Europe and Russia. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a good experience. That's amazing. So when you started, how many people were you competing against in the U.S.? Oh, like uh, pretty small. I mean, you know, Nordic skiing is a pretty small niche. And then like if you add like biathlon, which is the sort of the, the cousin sport, which just uses, you know, a rifle instead of a bow and arrow, mm -hmm. um, that's even smaller. And then if you like take... It's like even a smaller piece of that. So, um. <laughs> in chess boxing, which you know is that is, uh, where, where they're like rounds of chess and followed by boxing, like yeah. you have to be an okay chess player, but it helps to be a really great boxer. Like Mike yeah. Tyson would destroy Gary Kasparov. But do you have to be a better skier or archer in ski archery? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I would probably say skier. You have to be good at both for sure. Uh -huh. um, but uh, fast skiers tended to do better, I think, than just straight archers. Mm -hmm. cool. oh, yeah. And and so I, I know when you traveled abroad to competitions, families would put you up. Uh, could you tell us about your Russian host family and how they welcomed you when you were competing there? <laughs> Man, yeah, this uh, cracks me up because, you know, there was this one race I did in, like, a Siberian outpost. <laughs> and uh, there was, like, no hotels. So, yeah, I was put up by a host family. And, uh, you know, I was, like, in shape and, like, kind of living a monk lifestyle, like eating pretty healthy. And they were so tickled to have like an American in their house. They wanted to give me like the best hospitality possible. And they like, 
the night before the race, like insisted that I just take like vodka shot after vodka shot. <laughs> and like, then they're like heated up their like wood fired sauna and like, you know, like would accept like no for an answer. So I like, went out there and like kind of craziness just ensued with like a local policeman coming. And all of a sudden like we were firing his gun at like Pepsi cans in the backyard. <laughs> uh, I was not in tip top race shape the next day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't know if that was uh yeah part of like my competitor's plan or, or what. But uh you know years later like I don't think it mattered how I did in the race. It was a pretty fun story and cool cultural experience. And uh, yeah, I feel really lucky. That's pretty awesome. So yeah. um, we want to put you to a quiz because we always put our favorite guests to a quiz. So this is called real discontinued Olympic event or something we made up. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so so the first one is. Tug of war. Is this a real discontinued event or something we made up? Oh, I, I'm going to go real event. I bet, I bet in the old, like, you know, really, I can see this in early 1900s. I can mm-hmm. see, uh, I can yeah. see tug of war. Yeah. Absolutely right. They had eight men team and England was particularly good at it. And it was from wow. 1900 to 1920. All right. One for one. Solo synchronized swimming. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to go made up. I don't know if we could synchronize with. So I thought it was I thought it was fake too, but it's a real event. Uh, this is from 1984 to 1992, and despite the name, apparently the synchronized is actually with the music and not with the other people. Oh, that is so good! Isn't that crazy? We missed our calling, man. Gosh, that would have been fun. Yeah. Tandem horse dancing. Oh God. I want to say false, but after that last one, threw me for a loop. Tandem horse dancing. Uh-huh. It's I, I I have to say false. Yeah, it's false. <laughs> but I I want it to be a real event. Four two man snowman construction. Uh, two man. I'm I'm gonna go false. I hope this is false. <laughs> yeah, that's also false. And number five, swimming obstacle course. <laughs> well, we've only had one true one so far. Uh, I don't know if had two. Hmm. I, I, true. Yeah, that's right. So according to the Guardian, <laughs> the discipline required swimmers to clamber over a pole hovering just above the surface of the water, scramble over a row of parked boats, and then swim under another row of little ships. And apparently people who grew up in harbors would tend to win this competition. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, so Dave won an astounding four for five, which entitles him to our top prize, a handwritten note to his wife or boss singing his praises. Dave Vergart, thanks for being on Part-Time Genius. That's awesome. Thanks so much. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb. Tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Today! 
I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. So one thing I noticed while prepping for this episode is just how many breakthrough innovations happened to coincide with the 1960 Winter Olympics. And it's not an exaggeration to say that the games would never be the same again after that year. Wow, it's a big statement. All right, so what kind of stuff <laughs> are you uh, thinking about? Well, for starters, 1960 was the year of the Zamboni. The Zamboni, so like the thing on the hockey rinks and stuff? Yeah, so Frank Zamboni invented it in 1949, and he used it at his family-owned rink. And then it started to catch on with the public in the 50s, especially after Sonia Henney bought one to take along on her travels. And you remember Sonia Henney as the, the Norwegian young kid. I do remember her. And was his name really Frank Zamboni? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, it was. And when it came time for the 1960 Games, Zambonis were finally ready to make their Olympic debut. So they used Frank's patented method. The machine actually shaves the surface of the ice and then sweeps away the shavings. And then it washes the ice so it's nice and slick for skaters. And all these years later, Zambonis are still the gold standard. Yeah, it's an interesting fact. I'm I'm still not 100% convinced you didn't sneak that in just so you could say Zamboni. But <laughs> anyway, what else was big for the 1960 games? Well, Zamboni, Zamboni, Zamboni. Zamboni. <laughs> well, uh, the biggest game changer that year was that the Olympics were televised for the first time. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of hard to imagine today when you can watch round-the-clock live coverage of every single event. But... Until the 1960s, or and the 1960 Games in particular, the only people who could watch the Olympics were those who attended them. And that changed when CBS paid this tiny, paltry sum of $50,000 for exclusive broadcasting rights. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's so little money, right? But it totally paid off for the network, and they saw record-setting ratings that year. But the athletes and organizers actually benefited from it as well. So, all right, so how's that? Well, I mean, there was some confusion during the men's slalom skiing event that year, and officials were unsure whether one of the skiers had actually missed a gate during his run. But thanks to this new deal with the TV network, the officials actually had this chance to resolve the matter, and they asked members of the CBS team if they could review the tape to confirm what had happened. CBS obliged, and in doing so, they actually came up with something that became indispensable in all sports, the instant replay. 
So that all started from the Winter Olympics. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's pretty cool. I, I, I guess you're accurate. So 1960 was a pretty big year for the Winter Games. But, you know, actually one of my favorite innovations didn't come along until almost 30 years later. It was in the 88 Games in Calgary. And that was the year when the National Research Council of Canada devised a special all-weather Olympic torch. And this was to be used in the traditional relay before the Games. And unlike previous torches, this one was designed to be especially lightweight and it was powered by this special fuel that allowed the flame to stay lit during its 88-day, 11,000-mile trip across the Canadian tundra. That's amazing, across the tundra. And actually, it reminds me of something I read about this year's Olympic torch relay, which is going on right now. But apparently in December, there was one leg where the torch was carried by this South Korean robot named Hubo. Wait, is that allowed? I thought it all had to be people. <laughs> no, it can, apparently. And the best part was that Hubo used a power drill to cut a hole in a wall, and then he passed the torch over to the inventor who created him. <laughs> that is a little bit ridiculous. But, I mean, also a good reminder that the Olympics can be, you know, pretty entertaining sometimes. Yeah. Especially when you add robots to the mix, which is something South Korea is going all in on this year. Yeah, you know, I was reading about how their Ministry of Science is working with these local companies. And so they're rolling out new technologies all through the games. Like, apparently, they've been testing these multilingual and autonomous robots at the airports. So they can guide visitors to correct gates or provide information about flight times. And then when they aren't busy with guests, they just roam around and clean things up. That's awesome. And so the hope is that the bots can be put to work in Pyeongchang as a way to get visitors around this language barrier there. That's pretty neat. And from everything I read, this year's games are going to be like this true techie paradise. Hmm. So aside from the full-on robots, Hyundai has these uh, self-driving buses that whisk visitors around the host city, and they've got a fleet of uh, aerial drones that'll be watching over the proceedings. And that's not just to help broadcast events, but also for security purposes and maybe also part of the entertainment offerings. I don't know. We'll find out. But the thing that'll catch most nerds' attention is that the Winter Olympics will be the test site for the new 5G mobile network. And so most of us won't be able to connect to this new platform until 2020, but for those in attendance, the network will actually provide data speeds up to a thousand times faster than the current networks. Wow. I mean, that's fast enough to download almost a gig of data in a single second. That's pretty wild. That so, all right. Well, we, we've talked about some of these very, you know, tech heavy innovations that we should be seeing. But there are also some non-tech based first that we should look forward to as well. Uh, there was one of them I was reading about, you know, for example, Adam Rippon will compete in figure skating as the first openly gay male athlete to represent the U.S. in the Winter Olympics which is kind of hard to believe that Mm -hmm. it's not until this year that that's happening. But, you know, all the negativity aimed at homosexual athletes during the 2014 games in Sochi, Adam's performance hopefully will be an uplifting moment for many people at this year's event. Yeah. And uh, one of the first I'm most looking forward to this year is uh, Nigeria's debut at the Winter Olympics. The African nation will become the latest warm weather country to buck the cold climate trend. And that's all thanks to its women's bobsled team. Oh, wow. So it's kind of like uh, cool runnings all over again. Yeah, definitely. And and just like with the famous Jamaican bobsled team, Nigeria's team is a total labor of love. So they actually crowdsourced the $75,000 they needed on GoFundMe for like sleds and equipment and fees. And uh, according to the sled driver, uh, her name is um, Sion Adigan. And anyway, this is her quote. I was inspired to start the Nigerian women's bobsled team in hopes of being the first ever African representative, men or women, to qualify for the Winter Olympic Games in the sport of bobsled. Well, mission accomplished on Mm -hmm. that one. That's pretty neat. And I can't wait to see how they do. You know, this year, more than others, I'm really looking forward to the games. You know, things feel pretty divided these days. So it does seem extra important to have this event where 
people from all different regions and all different cultures, they can come together and you know, kind of celebrate what humanity is capable of and, and to do so in this friendly spirit of competition that the Olympics is really all about. I know. And in South Korea, you know, that's yeah, I mean. no kidding. But Will, I know the opening ceremonies are still a few weeks away, but what do you say we kick things off early with the men's freestyle fact off event? You know what, Mango? I say let the games begin. <laughs> So did you know that only one person has won gold at both the Winter and Summer Olympics? And that honor goes to American Eddie Egan. Uh, he won the light heavyweight boxing event in the 1920 Olympics. And over a decade later, he was part of the four-man bobsled team that took gold at Lake Placid. There are three other athletes that have won medals in winter and summer, but Egan is the only one to take gold at both. So I know we were just talking about the Jamaican bobsled team that got so much attention for the Calgary Olympics and cooled runnings. And, you know, the team was kind of a punchline for a while, but they eventually won their fans over because of their hard work and determination. But what I didn't remember and what most people probably don't remember is that the team still competes and they've actually gotten much better. In fact, only six years after those 1988 games, the Jamaican team actually beat both U.S. teams in the event. Wow, I didn't know that either. All right, so which country is most dominant in a single sport? I was looking into this, and you may remember that four years ago in Sochi, the long track speed skaters from the Netherlands took home something like 70% of the medals <laughs> in that sport. I mean, just completely dominant. Right. But the Atlantic was looking back at medals over the past 11 Olympics, and they found that the most dominant country in a single sport, those would be Germany's losers. And they mm. took home something like 37% of medals over that period of time. Now, I should note, this would include East and West Germany, as well as the unified Germany. So, they did get to have more competitors over that period of time, but that's still pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's amazing. So the only winter sport where an American athlete has never medaled is the biathlon. Um, but, you know, I have a feeling that they're going to pull it off this year. Yeah. But, I, I mean, the truth is I, I'm saying that like I know anyone who competes in Yeah, I don't sport. even know exactly <laughs> who does that. But I hope that we win one there. So, all right. Well, earlier we mentioned Norway being a powerhouse in the Winter Olympics. And it's even more impressive if you look at their performance per capita. With approximately 5 million citizens, they're roughly the same size as my home state of Alabama, and they've won approximately one Winter Olympic medal for every 17,000 residents. Mm. Now, that may, I don't know if that sounds like much or not, but compare that to the U.S., where it's one for every 1.2 million. So, I like that fact, but I can actually top it. Oh, no. And that's because uh, everyone forgets about Liechtenstein. Oh, I forgot about Liechtenstein. <laughs> so, they've won a total of nine medals, all in alpine skiing. And that's actually close to one for every 4,200 people there. That is pretty crazy. Yeah. That one out of every 4,200 people that live there has won a medal. That is <laughs> It's wild. on all their recruiting materials. Uh, well, Mango, I have to admit it. You, you have won it. You win this week's Fact Off trophy. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, thank you guys for listening. That's it for today. If we forgot any great facts about the Winter Olympics or just the Olympics in general, we'd love to hear from you. It's part-time genius at HowStuffWorks.com. You can always call us on our 24-7 fact hotline. It is still 24-7, Mango. Is it that right? is, yeah. That's awesome. Through That's 1-844-PT-Genius. You can also hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks so much for listening.
Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exact producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.